0: Welcome to another special edition of the Empathetic Witness Podcast. I, once again, am your guest host, Alan Pratt. And once again, I am interviewing your regular host, Angelina Pratt. Since part one went public in the last week or so, Angelina has received a number of requests for additional information and a number of other questions about her own experience at Holy Angels residential school uh, mission. Um, So we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive into her own experience and talk a little bit about the broader issues, policy issues and issues for, for the public about residential schools. First, Angelina would like to give you this warning for those of you who may be triggered by the contents of this podcast.
1: Thank you, Alan. And once again, I am really pleased to have you as the special host of today's podcast. And since we are going deeper into my experience in residential school and exploring some of the additional questions I received since the podcast went public, I want to have this warning. The trigger warning is, if you are a former residential school student, some of the information we discuss may be triggering to you, and I would like you to ensure that you have the proper care to get through it. There is a 1-800 number that you can call, and I will put it into the, the uh, episode notes for you to, to call if you need this additional support.
0: Okay, with that introduction, um, I'm going to provide my own introduction at Angelina's request. I'm going to talk a little bit about the policy behind the residential school uh, program policy. And and I'd like to put it in a broader context uh, of uh, Canada's colonization of indigenous people. Um, There's a lot of talk about colonization and decolonization these days. Um, And it, it, it can be a, The terms can be applied inappropriately uh, sometimes, but I think there's a genuine uh, truth at the heart of it that uh, the federal government, and they're not alone in this because the U.S. government did the same thing, uh, developed a policy to make Indian people um, dependent uh, by locating them on reserves, by taking away their traditional economies by taking away their traditional uh, political structures and, and uh, ways of governing. And when that wasn't working quickly enough, they decided to, do, uh, to, to, to go to the children of Indian people. And the, the, the clear policy was to take the children away from Indian families to make them non-Indians, to to deprive them of their languages, their cultures, their connections to their families, and in the words of some of the legislation, to civilize them. Uh, So civilizing Indians meant taking away their Indianness to save the child. This was the underlying policy behind the residential school. uh, policy. These schools were set up to inculcate Christian religions uh, in the children to make them despise their own identity and their own their own uh, nations, their own cultures, their own ways of thinking. So this was the policy that was started sometime in the 19th century, flourished all the way through the 20th century. by the time angelina ended up at holy angels um, a lot a lot to a large extent these schools were a relic of the past and i think as her experience indicates while there certainly were uh, abuses occurring in that school in that time um, there were attempts to be more uh, more humane Uh, the uh, the priests and nuns to some degree tried to speak the indigenous languages but the underlying purpose we can never forget was an evil purpose, and that was to take away the very identity of children, so that so that the federal government could wipe out the Indianness uh, in Indian people. So that's, I guess, my introduction. Um, my law practice deals with a lot of the doesn't deal with residential schools as such but it deals with a lot of the other aspects of the federal policies regarding Indians, uh, Indian lands, uh, making promises and breaching them and so on So this is this is intended to be an educational uh, discussion for people uh, to make the residential school experience as Angelina recalls it, uh, more personal, more detailed. But then to turn to some of the not only the personal effects that it's had on her as a, as a survivor of the system, but to get into broader policy issues of concern to all of us, such as um, the adequacy of things like apologies, compensation payments, and how can we as a society try to repair the damage that this policy uh, did. So with that introduction, I'll turn it back to Angelina and talk, talk to her about, uh, tell us more about your first day and how you uh, you arrived. You told us about Sister Plant and you got a, you got some new clothes. Tell us more about that.
1: Thank you, Alan. Well, my first day, as I said, was in December. And my sister, Dora, took me to the residential school. Um, And this is really actually unusual because a number of children were, even at Holy Angels, were actually brought to Holy Angels by the RCMP. So it was a more violent introduction to residential school. So I don't want to... To gloss over the fact that the students had the residential school, students, some of them had a different experience, a more tragic experience. Imagine being taken from your parents by the RCMP and brought to an institution. You have no idea what is going to happen to you. So. I want to just underscore that—that that my experience, being that my sister asked me if I wanted to go, I said yes. So I consented, even though as children you can't consent. But I said yes, and I willingly went with her to residential school. So that was my first impression of the school.
0: Well, there's a there's a kind of a standard. Uh, impression that when kids came to the residential school they were initially you know deloused and uh, their clothes were taken away they were given a uniform their hair was cut all of this to strip them of their previous identity did you go through any of that
1: I don't believe I did I think probably because you know I arrived just after the children had had their supper and maybe because it was out of the norm, you know, I arrived and I went directly outside to the playground. I don't think that happened. I may have had, you know, when I went, got ready for bed, I do remember them shampooing my hair with, with, uh, delouser. I, you know, I think that happened. I don't remember having them cut my hair because maybe I had short hair already I don't know.
0: Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, the little girl's room that you were sleeping in was a large open dorm so did you have anywhere to keep your personal possessions?
1: We never had any place to keep personal possessions, you know. And I don't even remember students with, um, you know, say pictures from their parents, favorite toys, that type of thing. I don't remember that we had a locker or a drawer or anything like that. There was no personal items kept.
0: Okay. Now, uh, your your sister Dora was a cook. Was was she able to come in and talk to you uh, from time to time, or did you see much of her?
1: I didn't see much of her except, through, you know, when we went to the dining hall and then I peeked my head into the kitchen, I could see her in the kitchen. I don't think she was prevented from coming to see us, but I don't think she actually came to visit.
0: <laughs> uh, what about, now she's a lot older than you, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So um, what about your brother, Rossi, you've mentioned a few times, and there were some other family members, your sister, Rose. Did you get to spend time with them?
1: Well, Rose was in, you know, so the, the girls were segregated from the boys. So I was segregated from my brothers, although we had certain times, you know, um, I have a photo of a Remembrance Day where we're sitting at a table in the dining hall, and my brothers were all present that were in residential school at the time. So there were times that we were together, but by and large, the only time I saw them was at school.
0: At school or at home? At school. Oh, okay.
1: At Bishop Pichet, that oh, was the school. Oh, right, that's
0: the school you went during yeah. the day. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay, so the school was then, was it... Um, It wasn't segregated, was it? Okay. No. So in the classroom, you'd have boys and girls. Yeah. Okay. Okay. First of all, talk about uh, at home. You, your your dad was a trapper.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: How did you eat at home?
1: At home, we had, you know, we ate wild food. We ate caribou, moose meat. We had fish from the, you know, from the lake. So we we had a we had a good good meals at home. Um. Uh,
0: yeah. How does that compare with what Dora and her cook, <laughs> her colleagues were cooking at the at the mission?
1: Well, I like the meals at the mission. I know some students had mentioned that. You know, I list I listened to some stories, and some students had said that they received oatmeal with worms in it. I don't know if that was at Holy Angels, but. We didn't get worms in our oatmeal, as I remember. In fact, you know, we always had dessert, and one of my favorite desserts was an upside-down cake. And I later asked my sister for the recipe for that cake because it was really quite delicious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What about things like celebrations? You all had birthdays. Mm Did the... the, the, um... Did the mission put on parties to celebrate students' birthdays?
1: I don't believe and I don't remember any birthday parties, no.
0: Okay. Now, what about um, reading material? Did, Did you bring your own books from home or somewhere else, or did you just have what they had at the mission?
1: They had a library in the mission, and that's where I read books from the library.
0: Okay, and were they? You talked about the saints and <laughs> martyrs. Uh, is, is that the kind of typical affair that they had? in, in Yeah, library?
1: there was a lot of um, books on martyrdom, uh, Christianity, martyrs, and yeah, that's where I got the books from. Nancy Drew books were were there as well, and I, I read those books.
0: But what about the, the relig- sort of religious instruction? Did you have norm? Did you have sermons? Did you attend church? Were the were the nuns uh, sort of instructing you in in uh, Catholicism? Um,
1: well, we we had religious studies at Bishop Peace, Pichet at the school. In the in the mission, we went to mass in the morning, so we went to morning mass after we woke up, but. We didn't really get instruction at the mission.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to, did you ever speak your language in the school? I know that you told us last time that at home your parents would speak the Denny language, and, and your generation would reply in English. So, were you, did you ever try to speak the Denny language, or did any any of the other students? try to speak the any language at the mission?
1: Well, one of my best friends was Cree and she was raised by her grandparents. She was living with her grandparents. And, you know, we went home on Sundays and when we came back, often she would come back with a bag of candies, chocolate bars and such. I would come back to school with oranges and apples, kind of, kind of boring stuff. So, with my best friend, she would teach me Cree words to get chocolate. <laughs> so she would teach me, she was teaching me to count in Cree. She taught me some other words in Cree. I think they were swear words, I'm not sure. But every time I said it properly, she'd let me have a chocolate. So so we did that. And I do remember we had Christmas concerts, and one Christmas... I learned how to sing a Christmas carol in Cree. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so you weren't punished for speaking the indigenous languages at that time?
1: Not that, not me, or not that I was aware of with the with the students around me. Although I have heard since, you know, some recordings that that other people were punished. So maybe. On the other side, the boys. Maybe there was more punishment with the boys. I'm not sure, but uh, I didn't see it, nor did I even was aware of it.
0: So I'd like to talk about um, that sort of the day to day. Is there anything else, sort of day to day life, that you'd like to share at this point? Because I'd like to move to your your reaction. Your own reaction to coming through this experience fairly unscathed, and 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 why why that is, why you feel the way you do. Is there anything else, first, that, about the day to day life you'd like to share? No, I think
1: the day to day. You know, yesterday I had a conversation with a couple of people about my experience, and I I was really bothered by the fact that I didn't know. About some of the trauma that was occurring for some of the other students. And I really racked my brain to try to remember, you know, was I, was I blocking out some information? You know, that was a question I asked myself as I reflected on my first podcasts, the first part of the podcast. And so I really developed a, a severe headache at the end of the day, and I don't know if that is a symptom of of suppressing memory. I don't mm. know. I really don't know. So I want to just maybe move move away from that, and maybe some of the as we go deeper into it, some of the um, information will be relieved re- revealed through my answers mm. as we move on. Okay.
0: So, you know, it's not uncommon, um, and I know you've, you've read extensively about the Holocaust mm-hmm. involving the, the, the Jewish Holocaust and the Nazis, and the survivors, there are some amazing accounts by survivors, and I know that you've read them and been very moved by them, and many of those accounts describe their guilt at surviving. Do you think that's a feature of your reaction?
1: Yes, I, I would think that. Well, I acknowledge that I do have some survivor's guilt. And I also have some guilt for not remembering some of the, the, um, maybe incidents that may have occurred in, in the, in, in the mission. So there is some guilt. But more than that, there is a, um, a sadness, and I don't know where that comes from.
0: Okay. Um, now, we know that a number of your siblings who went through the same school uh, have, have mentioned their residential school experiences as a source of a source of serious trauma and really life-disrupting uh was life-disrupting results um so what you're we talked about your brother rossi last time and i think we left the impression uh that that he was a violent person uh, who didn't mean to do that uh, he was actually a very sweet person and i, I mentioned that he got into a fight uh, that fight was a very nasty one that caused him brain damage, and ultimately his life. But he was actually trying to break up uh, an assault. There was he was in a he was in a food court, and a, a fellow you know, a male, uh, was beating up the, the his girlfriend, and Rossi stepped in to try to break it up, and then for his trouble he was he was assaulted very badly, causing brain damage and a coma. So um, his story is is one that is uh, very uh, very meaningful to me because I got to know him very well and I I got to see firsthand the extent of his uh, struggles. Um, but he, uh, he obtained a substantial compensation payment from the government, as part of the government's reaction to residential schools. And maybe that's a segue to talk about things like apologies, compensation, financial compensation, and, and whether they, they really deal properly with the issues. What do you think about that? That's a big subject.
1: I think that's a really good segue into talking about the apology, for one, the apology was, as I recall, in 2008, approximately 13, 14 years ago. And my question is, so what has been done since then? We know and we've talked about in the last episode the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the 194 Calls to Action But how many of those calls for action actually has the government adopted and started to look at? You know, for me, it is meaningless to apologize for something if you don't attach to it some way of rectifying the wrong. And I think in 2008, they thought, okay, we have... Created this Truth and Reconciliation Commission that will take care of our our guilt of what was done to the First Nations in Canada, but it didn't go far enough. And then we see in two thousand and twenty-one, this year, the discovery of unmarked graves, and I think the the amount of unmarked graves is is climbing to 2,000 souls. Mm -hmm. So since the discovery, what has the government said to Canadians? What have they said they would do? I mean, a lot of these unmarked graves have not been exhumed. We don't know how the young children perished, died, or were murdered. We don't know. There are so many unanswered questions, and I think for us to move forward and pass this horrible era, some questions need to be answered.
0: Well, there has to be a taking of responsibility. I think on the government side of things, and I think that for my part, there's there's the government side. There's the the need for a true acknowledgement. Uh, a genuine acknowledgement and actions with it Uh, but on the on the side of the survivors um there's a need for personal healing and i know that this podcast uh is devoted to healing in fact your foundation gift is devoted to healing uh developing coursework and uh and other other educational and other work to contribute to healing what's the connection between getting more government acknowledgement maybe more fact finding about these graves and and the individual survivors who need to move beyond this to have a better life
1: i think that the connection is you know once you find out why something Occurred, how it occurred, then you can move forward. We have a friend, uh, you and I, Alan, that went, her family went through the genocide in Rwanda. Her whole family were massacred and dumped into the river. She will never be able to even. Put their their remains to rest because they're gone. They're long gone. I think with residential schools discovery of unmarked graves, there's an opportunity to create a healing process and to put these bones to rest, like to identify them for one. Like who are they? You know, some parents, some families never saw their children again
0: well your your own mother put one of your brothers on a, on a plane uh, and never saw him again right
1: yeah he was 14 years old he, she put him on a plane to Fort Smith I think he was going to go to the hospital in Fort Smith he died there his body was not returned
0: yeah so that's that's a terrible thing to experience. Um So we've had an apology by, as I recall, was Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Mm-hmm. And frankly, a lot of people were quite surprised that uh, Harper, who was not considered a friend of First Nations people, would be the prime minister to deliver that apology. Um, what do you think an apology achieves? Or that apology?
1: Well, I think what it what achieved in the short term, like in the immediacy, I remember at the time it was um, Phil Fontaine, you know.
0: He was the national chief at the time. He was the
1: national chief at the time. And he, I think he took the apology at its face value. And so in the short term, you know, and with the fact that, you know, attached to the apology would be the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and also the, um, the repayment, the payment for residential schools, um, trauma. I think Phil at the time felt that That was good that finally the government acknowledged it. There was going to be a repayment. I mean, a payment of, of compensation for survivors of residential school. There was, there was a creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So the whole story would be heard. But like I said in part one, The recommendations for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, along with recommendations from the Royal Commission, which was in 1992, they just sat on the shelf and collected dust. So I think there is an opportunity now to pressure the government to be more serious about what and how they're going to reconcile the the um, the past legislation to to um, kill the Indian in the child, essentially the genocide of the culture of indigenous people. Now, how are we going to move forward? I think this is a question that needs to be answered.
0: Well, that's interesting, and I. I... I guess for my part, um, the government has apologized. They set up a compensation program, they set up a commission. And I think those dealt with certain people who went through the residential school experience, expressed satisfaction with all of those things that they felt that the apology, um, you know, and this is based on interviews at the time, they felt that the apology was a necessary step, an acknowledgement that the original thinking behind the this residential school system was just wrong and and harmful. Then there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which held hearings and made recommendations and 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 the calls to action which are their recommendations so calls for change and you have the individual survivors of the schools who received money what was missing well I'll, I'll ask you what was missing in that scheme and then I'll I'll give you my take on it or I'll give you my take on it first you're nodding so I think what's missing is that the two things. One is none of this made it into the consciousness of the Canadian public. That this was done at a high level. Government officials, uh, you know, drafting apologies, creating compensation uh, funds, uh, a commission. It didn't reach the average person's consciousness that our country had this, this secret past and and it was something to be acknowledged and not only not repeated, but to be really appreciated for what it was and to have some empathy. When you see a native person on the street, for example, and look down on that person who may be, you know, be suffering from addiction. To Have some empathy that that person may be on the street because of government action. Maybe you'll give that person a hand. Maybe you'll buy that person a meal. And and we try to do that when we see people on the street. We try to help them. We try to make sure that if we donate money to them, they, they're not going to drink it away. They're going to, you know, have something... Something to eat, but for the the actual residential school survivors, a sudden influx of money can do more harm than good. And we've seen that. Uh, we've seen that in your family, close to home. That, you know, that is intended. You know, as a lawyer, I'm used to uh, the whole concept of calculating compensation to rectify a past wrong. And money is often a very, very poor substitute for pain and suffering. Whether you're in a car accident or whether you've been sexually abused, um, money, if you're a damaged person, physically or emotionally or mentally, getting a sudden influx of money um, can do more harm than good. It can accelerate your downfall. And I think one of the things that was missing, and your colleague Maggie Hodgson uh, raised this point, that, uh, well, she was at Nietzsche for, for a long time before, uh, while you were there and, uh, and, and, and uh, before, that she uh, said that if the government didn't provide counseling for the people receiving these cash payments uh, they'd be doing more harm than good so what do you what do you think of all of that
1: yes i think that you've you've uh, described that pretty clearly and right and it brings to the question i know some people have an attitude that we all have a choice So perhaps you'll see an Indian walking down the street or a homeless person that looks indigenous, and you might have the thought, that person has a choice. They can make a choice to be on the street or not be on the street. But that really, I mean, you said earlier, just a few minutes ago, that we help people on the street. And we do, you know, sometimes we'll see somebody on the street, we'll offer that person money. But what we do is we ask the person what their name is because often people on the street don't get seen. Nobody looks at them. And then when we give them the money, we'll say their name again. So they know they've been seen. And it's not that we... We At least for me, when I give them money, there is no attachment. If they end up taking the money and getting alcohol with it or drugs, that's not on me. And I would hope that they would get food. But really, the whole point of the interaction is that they are seen and... Acknowledged as human beings, because essentially that's someone's father, that's someone's brother, that's someone's uh, grandfather, even. You know, these are people on the streets. So it's with compassion that we give the money, but it, there is no attachment. We hope that they would get something to eat, but we don't know for what happens. Mm-hmm.
0: I'd like to compare, you mentioned last time, I think you mentioned last time that your your parents didn't attend residential schools. Mm -hmm. They were traditional people. Yes. So in the course of a generation, um, your dad was a trapper, um, very traditional person. I don't think he spoke much English at all, Uh, non-Christian, but... I'm sure in his own way, a spiritual person. So he would have had a great deal in common with, with his ancestors going back thousands of years. He he would have understood their way of life. He would have commun- been able to communicate with them. He would have uh, lived in, and and provided for his family the same way. Um, your mom, devout uh, Catholic, married off at 14, Spoke her language, uh, produced nineteen children, uh, three of whom died uh, in 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 young young life. Um, so, but she again uh, was a traditional person. So, in the course of one generation, um, you have this generation of people who not all of you went to residential school but you all by and large got educated. Um, many of your siblings have lost their language you haven't mm-hmm. in the sense that you continue to understand your language and you're working on on overcoming your reluctance to speak it because that was how you grew up right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and then after your generation there's another generation, and and actually several generations. So, and their lives are very different from your parents' life. So in the course of, say, 100 years, you've got this massive transformation of the way of life. That's what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Massive transformation. What role do you think residential school played in that transformation?
1: That's a pretty good question. I, I mean, I think that, A larger role of the destruction of the cultural way of life was the creation of the Bennett Dam in the 70s. So the Bennett Dam closed off the water into Lake Athabasca and the water receded. So that
0: just for people who may not know, the Bennett Dam, I think, is in British Columbia.
1: Yeah. Yes, but it closed off the water to Lake Athabasca. Our town, Fort Chippewan, sits on on the edge of Lake Athabasca. And a lot of the cultural activities, you know, the trapping in the springtime, was from the lake, the muskrat, the beaver that came from the lake. So when that livelihood was pretty much disseminated, that caused more dependency on the welfare system and i think that by and large created the dis, i guess the dysfunctional lifestyle the way it started because before there was no reliance on on welfare because people were able to trap my 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 family and sell their their traps uh their furs to the Hudson Bay Company and they were able to get some money and so i mean i think residential school had a a huge part to play on parenting styles mm-hmm. so that you know the older people that went through residential schools didn't weren't able to model great parenting. And and I've heard, you know, some residential school survivors say that they didn't know how to parent. They didn't know how to hug their children. They didn't know how to be a parent. And so for that, I do blame the residential school.
0: Well, I think, I think this raises a broader context and bring it back to the work I do in land claims. Um, my work in land claims basically deals with the gradual illegal taking away of the economies of First Nations. And it happens in a, in, a, in, a, in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's dams. You mentioned the Bennett Dam. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada just handed down a decision in the Seul case, which I, I was privileged to Rep, where I was privileged to represent the first nation for quite a number of years and that's a, a pattern that's very similar to what you described they had they had selected land uh, that was perfect for their traditional way of life that their lake laxo was flooded to generate power for the city of Winnipeg and along the way their entire economy was obliterated obliterated that's what you're describing too mm-hmm and so the court is now struggling with how to properly compensate for the complete obliteration of a way of life. So how do you translate that into, into a financial compensation? And it's taken generations to get there. And that's a question without an answer, you know, in a sense. But the pattern you're describing is is a pattern of assaults on a way of life, partly on the economy Partly on the language, partly on the bond between parents and children, uh, the disruption of the continuity of generations mm. and the passing on of knowledge mm-hmm. and culture mm-hmm. and and beliefs, religious beliefs, you know, the the imposition of of Christianity in different forms. To me, it's all part of the colonial pattern, and. For me, it's very difficult to tease out from all of those things the impact of one element, and that's what residential school, uh, the residential school policy and experience is for me. It's that one element of, of trying, after taking away land, after after ruining the ecosystem that supported a traditional economy, you then try to erase the culture, the language. And the parental continuity, how do we acknowledge and reverse that today, the 21st century?
1: Wow, that's a huge... I mean, I don't think it can be reversed. Like, you can't reverse that. I mean, the lifestyle, the trapping lifestyle. I remember in the mission, actually, there was, you know a few students that were allowed to go home during the spring trapping season Mm. because I remember them leaving and coming back after that trapping period, um, coming back into the mission. So they were allowed to go with their family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's another point. I mean, one of the questions that was asked of me, did we go home in the summertime? We did. We went home at the end of June and came back in September. So there was that little bit of reprieve that we went back home. Um, but you know the decimation of of our cultural lifestyle, the trapping, hunting lifestyle. You can't. There's no way to to. Um, There's no remedy for that. The only remedy that I see is a continued educational process, and that's beginning to happen. I have a nephew who teaches the youth in Fort Chippewan um, traditional cultural practices, land-based practices. So more and more youth are going back to the land and learning their their culture through that relationship with the land. Mm-hmm. That's the only way. And I think in, on the part of the government, the government also should institute, policy, not policies, but institute programs that Indigenous First Nations youth can access if they want to go back to the land because it takes it takes a certain amount of uh, funding to do that. Too.
0: Well, I know the um, the um, the Grand Chief of the Dede Nation, Norman Yakolea, is is working on that type of thing. Is he not?
1: Yes, Norman is a good friend, and that is exactly what he did last year at the beginning of the pandemic. He decided to to create a program that would take his members into the to the land and it was it was an attempt to to help with um, reducing the addictions to alcohol and drugs and that's what he's done I haven't I haven't been talking to him lately so I don't know how well the program how program went but that was his thinking, that he wanted to take the, the youth into the, the land and teach them the cultural um,
0: traditions. Well, maybe you can talk to him in a future podcast.
1: That's an excellent idea.
0: <laughs> I have my moments. <laughs> yes. So, so you're, we're getting kind of near the end of the time, I think, uh, we, we want to discuss uh, this. Um, I was trying to sum up some of what you're saying, you came in at the really the tail end of the residential school period, when I think there were some attempts to accommodate, uh, you know, the uh, the indigenous way of life. I mean, in the past, they would never have allowed students to go for a spring hunt mm-hmm. uh, or to go home uh, for a summer and and had that exposure to the parents they were trying to distance you from. Um but it doesn't change the fact that the whole idea behind it was to provide a second rate form of education and to and to make you less uh indigenous, make you less Dene. Uh so your own reaction that you went through a fairly mild form of experience and you're questioning whether you're repressing some memories. I I'll tell you, I don't think you are. I think you're a very mentally healthy person. And if you had deep repressions, <clears throat> I would have figured it out by now. <laughs> so there must, maybe there's another explanation that you were actually taken care of and watched over by others while you were at residential school and some of the things that other students experienced uh, you were protected from. Mm-hmm. So you wanna talk about that?
1: Okay, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, so as I was thinking about yesterday, you know, I was, I was reflecting on my experience in residential school and wondering why I didn't remember any of the negative stuff I mean, I do remember people, students running away and then being brought back. I don't remember if they were brought back by RCMP, and I don't remember if they were beaten when they brought, were brought back. I know that. There,
0: sorry, there's some accounts um, that have been made public that that students at your school were beaten.
1: Yeah, but I'm saying I don't recall. Yeah. So I don't recall. They may have been, but I just don't recall. And so I was, as I was trying to reflect back, like, why is it that I don't remember these these things? I do remember them returning. I remember students crying when they were brought back. And I remember students running away again after being brought back. So something terrible was going on. And I acknowledge that. But for my part, in terms of why did was my experience different? So then I had to look at what was different about me? How was I different than the other students? And this part of the story is kind of hard to tell because I never talk about it. So what was different about me is as a young child, as a toddler, in the last pandemic in Canada, the polio pandemic, I was affected by polio and I've read um, a lot of research reports and a lot of accounts of former polio survivors, especially when there was this thing called post polio syndrome, which is, you know, like when you have polio, it's a neurological disease and it affects your brain, the functioning of your body. So, you know, it's either your limbs or your hands or in some severe cases, it was the lungs. And so the lungs weren't getting the proper air and a number of polio survivors, I mean, polio um, victims were put into iron lungs. And, and then i was treated not for the neurological effect of the polio but the orthopedic effect so my limbs were were uh, operated on you know add that type of thing so it was more a function of of uh, and it's because they didn't know or i don't know if they didn't know i mean same you know i could have felt i could have felt um Anger to the fact that you know the polio vaccine was was discovered and created in before I was born. So why did I get it? Like it didn't make sense to me. Like okay. in all of Canada, it was dis- it was discovered before I was born. Mm-hmm. So I could have felt anger about that, but I didn't. And then the more I researched polio survivors and you know some famous ones you would know like Donald Sutherland the actor Neil Young the musician um
0: Joni Mitchell
1: Joni Mitchell a a singer so you know what's in common with all of us is that we are fighters and we don't see ourselves as victims and I think more importantly we want to fit in so I wanted to fit in with the rest of the students at Holy Angels. But I think the reason that I had a more positive experience is probably because I spent many months in the hospital. So I left residence, Holy Angels, to go to Charles Campbell Hospital. Now that's another story, because Charles Campbell Hospital was an Indian hospital. And there's stories of abuse at Charles Campbell Hospital as well. And so you kind of wonder, did I cover up, you know, memories of Charles Campbell Hospital too? Because there are things that happen from previous patients from Charles Campbell that traumatized them. But my experience at Charles Campbell was different. I actually had good relations with the, the nurses. The chief of staff of the Charles Capsule Hospital, Dr. Singh, was the orthopedic surgeon. And and he at, actually, when I was young, invited me to his house. I met his family. So, And then when I left the hospital, I actually correspond with some of the nurses. One of the nurses I remember was Mrs. Young. And I would correspond with her. I corresponded with some of the doctors. So I developed different relationships. And I think that's what set me apart. You know, when I would go to the hospital and I, as I was getting dressed to leave, often I would five, find $5, $10 in my clothes that the nuns left for me so that I could and buy. Those s- are the nurses. The nuns. Oh,
0: they had nuns there too?
1: No, at the residence. Oh, I'm
0: sorry, I thought you were still talking. Yeah,
1: no, when I left the residence to go to the hospital
0: Mm. and
1: I'd be getting dressed, I would find money in my clothes. And Mm -hmm. the money was for, so I can buy sweets at the canteen. So I think, you know, like maybe it was my, I don't know, my bright personality, I don't know. But I seem to be... I cultivated, you know, um, a certain, I guess, tenderness from people in that were caring for me. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was because, you know, of my, my, uh, the challenges with my leg. You know, I don't know. Um, but I think that set me apart. And that is part of the story. So when you're looking at and listening to my story... You have to also imagine a young girl with a physical limitation.
0: And a large brace.
1: It wasn't too yeah. large. No, well, I had little very, legs.
0: very <laughs> obvious, an obvious brace. on. Yeah, your yeah, legs. I had,
1: yeah, I wore, in, back in those days, I wore a steel brace. Mm-hmm. And I was really self-conscious of it because sometimes it would squeak when I walked. So I was really worried about that. And I remember one of the nuns oiling it so that it wouldn't, wouldn't squeak. So, I mean, you know, so I'm looking at, you know, the care that I was given. I wasn't abused, not by the students and not by the nuns or the teachers. So I feel that I was quite blessed in that way. And I, I, And I do know, you know, partly it was because they, I don't know, like, you know, like on the other side of it, you know, not at the time I was going to residential school, but there were children that were killed at residential school. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I survived, you know, because even sometimes if you do have a disability, you're actually more mistreated. By the population mm-hmm. like generally and other kids but for some reason i was spared that
0: well that's um that's a very interesting part of your own story and having been married to you for almost 30 years i know that you never talk about that uh, people have known you for decades and don't know that you had polio as a child and you still suffer from the, some of the effects of polio. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that I think that when I see pictures of you from those days, your your smile is radiant. You know, you have a kind of a lopsided smile with very deep uh, dimples, and um, I think people were protective of you. Your sister Rose, when she took you that first day. Mm-hmm the reason you were starting school in December was because you had just come from the hospital. Right?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: So, and, um, and you were excited because you were going to be with other kids instead of being a patient in the hospital, Mm -hmm. you know, so your, your whole attitude to the experience started out, uh, differently. Mm. And, and that led to, um, I think that led to people looking after you, but, you know, from my perspective, I didn't go through anything like that. Um, there's no cause to be guilty because you didn't suffer in those schools. And I think the fact that you are spending this time as part of your commitment to healing, uh, without yourself having suffered what so many other indigenous people suffered, it's um, it's it's very it's very good of you. And, um, and I think this, this discussion, this podcast and the others you're having, uh, in empathetic witness, I think, uh, it gets a story out to the, to the larger public that they need to hear. And they don't just need to hear it. They need to really internalize it and understand how it colors, how this country has evolved. And, um, and I think the the issue of the unmarked graves is the one that is going to achieve so much of that. And while this issue has the public's attention, it's very important that people like yourself get out mm-hmm. um, your stories and the words of of how so many of your fellow indigenous people were harmed so deeply by bad decisions and harmful decisions made by people in power Mm. and that the communities of indigenous peoples today have to bounce back somehow from this legacy. And, you know, as I've said, it's not just a legacy of residential schools. It's a legacy of depriving people of their meaningful economy, way of life, culture, you know, spiritual beliefs and so on. So um, this gets us towards the end of our second part. Is there anything you feel you want to add that I failed to ask you?
1: Um, well, one of the questions that was sent, I think I just wanted to go back to ask whether or not the nuns read to us
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: when we went to bed. And the answer to that is just simply, no, the nuns never read to us. We never had story time. So, I mean, I think that is really important because I know as my son was smaller, that was something that was important to him was that time to connect and read to him at night.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so many children didn't get that at residential school. So I think that's kind of an, an important piece. We didn't have a normal upbringing in the sense of a family unit and the rituals that went on. Another question that was asked, you know, when when I arrived at Holy Angels, did I, you know, how often were we allowed to bathe? Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting question. And I often thought about, you know, that ritual of hygiene at the mission. We each had a little basin, you know, on a on a counter, and we would get water, and we were, you know, at at night we can wash our face and brush our teeth with this little basin. Once a week, we took a, a bath in the bathtub with our underclothes on. <laughs> <laughs> so, and sometimes there was two in the in the tub, mm-hmm. and we would have that was the weekly. Uh, ritual of uh, the hygiene was to have a bath. And uh, and I guess it's because they were Catholic nuns and they didn't want us to be bathing naked. I don't know what they thought would happen <laughs> <laughs> with their dirty little minds. <laughs> but anyway, so I thought about that. So those were the two things I wanted to just yeah. um, add in. Um, I think, you know, What The message I want to actually bring to a point is that, one, this horrible, horrible policy occurred, and for whatever reasons, no one was taught the history of residential school. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see it being taught from K to 12 in all the curriculum in the schools in Across Canada, that should be something that everybody should know about, you know, so that when you talk about residential schools, they're not just thinking, okay, there were unmarked graves, there was something horrible, but happened. What I want them to know is, what is the history? Why were these policies created? Underlying that, and, you know, as with Alan, I I was my career was in land claims the underpinning for those policies is that the government of canada wanted the land from the indians so they wanted to, they wanted to take the land and so underpinning that so them wanting to take the indian out of the the child wasn't so that they could Um, make us into white people, because no matter what, they wouldn't have accepted us. So it wasn't, it was, it had a more, um, I guess, hardcore reason behind it. And it's based in hate. It was hate for the indigenous people, because they wouldn't, even if we spoke the language, I mean, we know that today. If you see an Indigenous person, there's still racism. And we all speak English. So it's not that. We all dress the same. It's not that. So if, what I want people to know is the history of residential schools, why it was created, The background to the real reason, the dark and deep reason for creating these residential schools, so that it may never, ever be happening again. I don't know. Like the whole colonial um, system is so difficult to unravel. You know, I've talked to, I've talked in this podcast. You know, how to demystify and unravel alcoholism, how to unravel foster care, how to look at Indigenous storytelling from the point of view of an Indigenous point of view. And it's really difficult because it is so woven into colonial perspective. And how do you untangle that? We start first by knowing the true story. We, f- we start first by recognizing why these residential schools were created. And then we can move from there. That's, that's it.
0: That's the last word. I am officially retiring as the guest host of this podcast, unless I am asked <laughs> for a part three. Um, <laughs> thank you for your time, and for all the listeners out there, thank you for your time and patience for listening to this. What I think was a very important uh, summary of the roots of the residential school experience, uh, as well as the colonial experience that underlies that underlies land claims. And I think it's all about racism. I agree with that. So thank you. And we will call it.
1: I wanna thank you, Alan, for being an empathetic witness and to be being quite a good interviewer. It really helped me sort through some of my thinking and have clarity on my my own experience and understanding what I went through. I think it's important that we understand our experience, because ultimately what we want to do is break the cycle for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and all the children to come. Because, you know, I see even in my own family, the cycle is still not broken, and there's still a lot of hurt and unhealthy behavior. And so... You know, I think we can begin by understanding our own experience, looking at how can we break the cycle. And we do that first by knowing why we do certain things and to make the changes we need to be changed. You know, like I said earlier, you know, some people say, you know, we all have a choice and that's right. We do have a choice. But sometimes the choice doesn't come easy for some people who have been damaged and are dealing with an emotional, mental, unhealthy mind, and maybe an addictive mind. So be compassionate when you're out there. Be an empathetic listener when somebody is talking about their experience and the difficulty that they're having in their own life. And with that, thank you, Alan. I am really pleased that we were able to do part two. And you are such a good interviewer.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. And we'll call it a day for now. Thanks.